Okay, so welcome, Neil Thies, my dear. Thank, Thank you, me. Joanne, for having me. <laughs> no, no, it's seriously. lovely to see you. So great to see you. Yeah. And for those of you listening to the podcast, we're on Zoom too, which is a super treat for me. Speaking to Neil in New York, are you in your office? Yes, I am. Thank you for finding time for me in your office. I microscope. <gasps> your microscope. Oh my God. Well, I just wanted to say um, the, the the theme of this podcast, I'm so excited. I'm like a little Duracell bunny because I've got so many questions. The theme of this podcast is pain removed, performance improved. And I think we're currently in something of what I like to refer to as a paradigm shift. And I know a lot of people sort of groan and go, oh, God, not another paradigm shift. <laughs> However, we are literally changing the foundation of the language of how we understand the body with the ability to see things so in such exquisite detail. And I remember when I first met you in Dundee and you said, you know, I spend my life with my eyes down a microscope. But what's so incredible is that when you stand back to the macro body, you make sense not just of the microscopic segment of a liver cell that I might be looking at, but of the whole body. And what you talked about with me was the spaces. I know they're virtual spaces in the body. We don't have empty holes everywhere. But we talk about the fascia as being part of a weave. And a lot of people seem to get very confused about the terminology. Is interstitium synonymous with extracellular matrix, synonymous with fascial fibrous matrix, which I think they see as a sort of a carpet? And, and, and. So all that pot of ideas. Can I start you off with that wonderful conversation you had when you revealed or you realized that the spaces the in-between the negative space as it were in an image were all connected what that was can we start there and see where it goes sure <laughs> huge question. you know i puzzle over the terminology issues a lot yeah um and i'm not exactly sure how um a consistent unified terminology will emerge um though I can see what I think the shape of it is likely to be. If you look at our most recent paper, the one that came out in communications biology three weeks ago, we were very careful this time <laughs> um, to, speak, to, to leave out words like fascia and interstitium mm -hmm. and spoke about um, what had been called the reticular meshwork of by Franklin Mall, an anatomist, back at the turn of the 20th century, yeah. 19th to 20th. Um, what we now would refer to as fiber connective tissue or fibrous network. Um, and the spaces within those fibrous networks, the interstitial spaces within those fibrous networks. And part of the difficulty is that if you look at the list of fibrous tissues in the last uh, edition of um, the big textbook, multi-editor, um, I'm thinking, I can't give you the whole list off the top of my head, but Carlos Stecco and Robert Schleip and three other people, I think, um, edited um, and published lists of what are considered fascia, 
it was almost a complete list, but they left out dermis. Mm. Our initial paper looking at interstitial spaces of fiber connective tissue, which everyone refers to as the interstitium paper, um, started with dermis. Well, actually, it was the second step yeah. Yeah. Was, was the dermis. So that list of what would com be comprised by the word fascia, if fascia is in fact equivalent to fiber connective tissue, that list needs to be completed. Uh, I'm not sure how many things might be missing, but dermis is pretty significant. Um, and then I would refer to what we were talking about as interstitium, which is the large-scale interstitial spaces between uh, the fiber-connective tissue structures of the body. That needs to interface with the interstitium terminology that pre-existed these structures being more well characterized or more thoroughly characterized than we began doing. And those are the intercellular interstitial spaces, which are on the scale of, uh, you know, submicron, to <clears throat> the pericapillary interstitial spaces that are about 10 microns, uh, so one hundredth of a millimeter, mm -hmm. the space through which there's waste and nutri nutrient exchange from capillaries in the blood out to the uh, the tissues that they travel through, and then those in turn lead into these larger scale spaces, which had not been well characterized, uh, though there were hints of it before our paper. Yeah. But I think that the beginning of a, an appreciation for it, I'd like to think our paper helped with. So that, that's one set of issues. And whether one calls this interstitium or fascia, once the definition is complete on either side to encompass all the pieces that actually pertain, they are sort of ground and foreground. Um, the spaces exist because they're structured by fiber connective tissue that's primarily collagen, but many other molecules. Uh, elastin is prominent. Um, but as you say, there's no true space because it's filled with stuff. Yeah. And in our most recent paper, we highlight hyaluronic acid, or I can always, I can never pronounce it in the way Carla refers. Yeah. <laughs> say it. Hyaluronin. Yeah, I can't say that word. Yeah. I just can't. <laughs> I practice it. I practice. <laughs> yeah, I can't get it. But it's like H -A. yeah, HA, that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, HA, hyaluronic acid. So all the interstitial spaces across those scales, and I suspect they are fractal scales, though that needs to be proven. Yes. Um, they all are rich in HA, uh, proteoglycans, many of which are similar, some of which are different at the different levels of scale. So they look like empty spaces on our typical uh, histology as it's evolved um, with the routine stains we use because those molecules do not stain. So they, they, those are the spaces look like they aren't filled by anything. And in our most recent paper, I think the, the most vivid thing for a lot of people who are trained in his, traditional histology is these are not virtual spaces or artifactual spaces 
they are real spaces filled with this sub, the, these substances. So there is no emptiness, <laughs> per se. Yeah. But there are spaces. But there's nothing there, apparently. <laughs> right. Um, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. 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 Um, so. Um, so that sets the parameters, I think, of what we're all looking at. And a conversation, an ongoing conversation that we've only had the beginnings of, both with uh, Jaap van der Waal and uh, Professor Gimberto. I love just calling him it's Professor Gimberto. I know you say it so beautifully. I was just, my next question was, of course, this word fibroconnective is another thing that people... Um, I think trip over a little bit because we have this idea. I mean, Gil Headley's the first one to say, oh my God, the fuzz, but he made a, a, a YouTube video many years ago of the fuzz. And I've since seen him do a whole piece called the film because it's, <laughs> of course, in the living body, it's nothing like the fibrous connective tissue, fuzzy fiberglass like stuff that you get in formalin dissection. And of course, Jean-Claude Gamberto has done so much work to show that, gloopy I mean I was in a webinar the other night and I, I happened to have burnt my hand and my mother's staying with me and she grabbed an aloe vera plant and split the leaf open to rub it on my hand and there it was this absolutely perfect sample of the quality I'm not saying aloe vera gel is fascia please understand I'm not like that daft but the liquid crystal nature of this living it was living seconds before goop that was under the dermis within the cellulose structure of that plant was, was just behaving exactly like one of Jean-Claude Gamberto's videos. He's a friend. He's a friend. So I keep saying Jean-Claude and I'm supposed to say Dr. Gamberto, whatever, but um, we're all on the same page here. It's finding the words and the, the, I, I mean, I remember when your paper first came out and at first there was this like, what do you mean the interstitium? We've been studying fascia for years. And I know John Sharkey was part of the people, you know, spoke with Robert Schleip and said, well, why aren't we inviting them in? Why aren't we opening the doors? And I, and I was there to witness this whole overlap between you and Dr. Gamberto and Yap van der Waal in Dundee and see this exquisite play of the different languages of your specialities coming together and finding this gentle tapestry to weave together a language that we can all use. And John Sharkey was talking to me recently saying, look, when I'm working with brain surgeons teaching specialized surgical techniques, you have a very different language to a neuromuscular therapist who's learning how to put their hands on a body versus neothese who's looking down a microscope. How do we find a common um, qualitative word that somehow allows for this common tissue because, you know, I would add bone to your list of tissues. <laughs> well, I know John would certainly too. And John, I, as with Stephen I, Levin and his lovely paper but, on bonus fascia, you know, we all have to. Uh, and, and you guys, that's your, that's the, <laughs> that's your, upset, your battle. You do I'm that. like, I'm, whatever. whatever. Tell me what you decide and I'm fine. <laughs> really? I, but what I'm saying is we're all on the same page looking. Okay. And John has offered this term, the, the singularity, the universal singularity. And I'm not trying to make John right or wrong, but what I'm saying, it sounds like you're both kind of nudging into this same difficulty that it isn't the same for every dominion. Right. Well, so, so 
number one, I would hesitate to use the word singularity for anything anymore because it's been co-opted by people who have a very different agenda for the future of human development, et cetera, and to suggest, so that's, uh, I'm not going near there. Um, (laughs) And so I would not use that term, even if it turned out to be a really good term for what we're talking about. Yeah. It's already somebody else's term for a whole other set of things. Um, I I think that, so a very, Jean-Claude and I are talking about maybe trying to have a Zoom together where we can like meet our minds a little bit more. And Yap and I, I think, have already sort of approached these kinds of things. I think part of the issue is that we, um, we need to think about levels of scale at which you're describing the nature of the body. Mm-hmm. And recognizing, and I actually, okay, shameless self-promotion, I have a book deal and I'm writing a book on complexity theory in particular, how complexity theory applies to the body. Mm -hmm. And one of the really important principles is that when you select a scale and perspective to view the body, you will see different things. And you will exclude some things from view while you elaborate on others. If you try and expand that definition where you have things in view to include the things you can't see, you will lose some of the things you did see as you shift. Um, This is called, and I think it is a formal term, in fact, a complementarity. Uh, Niels Bohr, though, one of the founders of quantum physics, talked about complementarities. The famous one in quantum physics is wave-particle duality. Light is both a wave and particles but you can only see one form of it or the other, depending on the way you observe it. He um, actually used the, um, uh, (laughs) I'm making a gesture that no one can see. The yin-yang symbol. The yin-yang symbol, (laughs) yes, exactly. Um, I knew what you meant. Yeah, it was, he put it into his coat of arms and it's on his tombstone because he believed that, experiencing the universe existed through experience and that experience at all levels was uh, characterized by complementarity. And with completely independent of the fascia interstitium stuff I'm doing, uh, when I get into consciousness studies with my collaborator, uh, Minas Kafatos, um, we talk about biological complementarity of the kind that Bohr predicted would exist um, and universal complementarity of the kind he would uh, Bohr imply. And how that applies to the body is that at this level of scale, our bodies are things and you can talk about them in terms of carpentry and engineering and geometry and levers and pulleys. Um, when you get down to the, although those have limitations too, obviously, as yeah. John has discussed with me. Um, you go down to the cellular level and all those tissues disappear. There's no tissue there, it's just cells. Well, you go down to the nanoscopic level and there's no cell there. There's just uh, molecules, biomolecules, smaller molecules, ions, atoms um, floating in 
aqueous solution of the water of your body. There's no such thing as a cell that is a reified thing at all levels of scale. There's no such thing as a tissue that is a reified thing at all levels of scale. So when I look at the tissues under this slide and I see this fairly rigid fiber connective tissue that Jean-Claude's images clearly show you, well, that's a fixation artifact. Yeah. They are much more, you use the word liquid bloopy. Yeah. Um, that's because collagen molecules are self-organizing themselves within aqueous solution. They still contain that liquid, the water, as well as other less viscous things that are still viscous, like they may not have hyaluronic acid in them, but they've got proteoglycans, glycosaminoglycans inside that are part of how they're self-organizing. And then you transition out from there into the hyaluronic acid, which is much more like a gel. And you realize this is all just biomolecules in different phases of a watery environment. There's no inside and outside. Mm. There's just the fluid continuum and the molecules that are floating in it. So there's no intracellular and extracellular. So I think that we have to face that any terminology we come up with has to reflect the choice of perspective. And that's where Yap and Jean-Claude and I, I think, um, if we ever have the chance to be in a room together again, <laughs> sometime soon, um, I think that's one of the points all of us are making, that when you get down to the molecular level, it's just stuff floating in water and self-organizing. So the idea of tissues and cells having import, at that level, they have no import. Step away, and they're everything. <laughs> Both things are true. Yes. I keep using that. Uh, you've heard me do this a million times now. Many of your listeners have. Um, two faces looking at each other, and the space between them looks like a vase. Is it two faces or a vase? It's both. Both either, but, either nor. Yeah. Yeah. And if you say it's one, you're losing something. If you switch to capture the other, you lose the first. So I, I think that that's what this is bringing us to, and this relates to your more global philosophical spiritual questions is, and that's gonna be in my book too. Um, <laughs> uh, current working title, Notes on Complexity. Um, that the notion of a body is contingent. You know, our Earth is a body, Gaia, as John Lovelock would have it, is a body comprised of ecosystems. And ecosystems are bodies comprised of living beings. And living beings are bodies comprised of cells um, at the microscopic level. Um, cells are comprised of molecules, you know, so, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to the quantum level, in which case the universe is a body. And there is no outside of that body because it is the entirety of the body and there's only diversity within it. I, you, I, you've just spun me into a, my favourite place. I, you've reminded me, and forgive me doing this, but it makes it kind of real and then back out again. When I was 18, 19, I went to university to study fine art and English. And the first job that we were given was to go to the local museum that was full of stuffed animals. 
and there was a tiger, a full life-size tiger stuffed in a cage in a glass box, mm-hmm. a very modern, beautiful museum at the time. We're talking 1977, 89, something like that. And I was asked to draw this thing. And one of the things that I noticed in my experience of the drawings, and I, and I produced hundreds, Neil, yeah. just hundreds. I mean, you can imagine. Wow. I covered half, three quarters of the art room with just these questions I was asking visually. Was I noticed that if I looked at the tiger, I had to kind of say to myself, there is no glass box. There is no surrounding anything. I'm just looking at the tiger. And it was as if some aspect of me drew the tiger because that was the task. Mm-hmm. But then when I sat back and looked, I realized that the glass box in which the tiger had been set was this fascinating myriad multidimensional light box reflecting and mirroring me drawing the tiger in it. <laughs> You'll uh-huh. appreciate the, the uh-huh. philosophy behind it. And I, by that time, was studying transcendental meditation and had been for several years. And it was, you know, the earlier parts of my journey into the mysticism or the the mystery school that I'm in now. And I I was drawing and I suddenly thought, oh, my God, I've just realized I can't see the tiger when I'm drawing the lights. Uh And I can't see the lights when I'm drawing the tiger. What happens in the Uh in-between? And I ended up tearing the shape of the tiger's silhouette out of newspaper and laying it on paper as a collage with layers of cellophane, coloured cellophane, like you'd use in in lights in a studio, to give the observer the impression of the struggle I'd had in what was I seeing when I drew what when. And so when I'm in the lab, fast forward 100 years to the lab with you and Rebecca Wells was there and, or, you know, John Sharkey at the lab in Dundee. And somebody said to me, oh, can you show me how tibialis posterior is connected to the <laughs> deep um, crural cavity in the lower leg? And I was like, what do you want to know? Why do you want to know it? What use is this to you? Well, I'm a yoga teacher. Okay, great. Why do you want to know how it moves? What effect it has on the structure of the rest of the body? What do you mean? Well, if it's like this, then it has this effect. And if it does this, it has that effect. And it's, it, it, it has a consequence throughout the whole system. It depends how you look at it. And of course, it's what you said. We had to destroy everything in order to get to see it that would reveal how it works. And I thought, oh, my God, this is our dilemma. All these arguments and discussions and who knows and who doesn't is about what we sacrifice to find out the thing. Right. You know, when when Virchow went to the cell, yeah. the cell is the unit of life. Oh, thank God we've worked out what it's all about. But then suddenly you've ignored everything that at much the same era. Right. Galileo is looking at through telescopes on the other end of the scale. And the arguments are actually the same. Yeah. I mean, the the, earth, the the sun is both the center of our solar system and not <laughs> both. Exactly. both. It's just it's much simpler to describe the orbits of the planets if you put the sun at the center. But there is proper mathematics if you put the earth at the center. It's just really complicated. <laughs> um, so you, we, we choose views to serve purposes. But the the issue for me, I think, scientifically with the the last couple of centuries is that the reductive view 
um, the people forget why they're looking into the smaller pieces. Uh, it's a similar thing when, you know, the, the answers that we can't make about human tissues, so we go to animal tissues. And I've had arguments about, you know, I study human liver stem cells. That's one of my things. I don't really care about mouse liver stem cells. <laughs> um, if it can't be answered in the human tissue, it's not a question that interests me just because my techniques are limited. And I, I, I have a creative imagination about human tissues that I see under my microscope. Not so much about mice. But I have seen review articles about liver stem cells that leave out the entire body of human liver stem cell research, including my own, but plenty from other people, because the mice data look like quote unquote real science, but they don't say liver stem cells in mice <laughs> or in rodents, because some of it's rat, they just say liver stem cells. Well, the only, I mean, unless you're going to set up a hospital for mice and rats, um, the only reason we're studying them is to help us get an idea of what's happening in the humans. But there are people who have so spent so much time in their lives studying the rodents, they no longer have any notion of what's going on in humans. And when they put me in the room with these people, and they are describing the changes they see in the liver of a rodent model of something. And they call it, this happened to me last, one of the last trips I took before COVID, um, very high level science meeting in Europe. I won't be more specific than that. And people would say, well, here's a mouse model of acute hepatitis. And so we're seeing how stem cells behave here. And I said, well, the first problem is that's not an acute hepatitis. That looks like an acute large bile duct obstruction injury. I know that because this is my clinical practice. <laughs> and so right there, your premise is wrong. Um, okay, I'm obviously going off on a tooth. <laughs> no, but I love it because what you're actually highlighting, Neil, is the problem that we all have. And this is, I'm going to, I'm going to bring in biotensicrity here, not because I'm a pain in the tail but because one of the things about biotensicrity and there's very very few people that I come across that seem to really get it is that biotensicrity explains forces moving through forms mm -hmm. and they, it explains forces moving through non-linear biologic forms uh -huh. so it's not tissue dependent right in that sense and it's scale free in another sense. And I use that term very carefully because I know it doesn't mean the same to you and me, but I think I can get us there. In this sense, if we consider, let's just play gross now. If we consider a beautiful drawing from Albinus on Anatomy by Jan van der Laar of the skeleton, and it's standing there with one hand draped on a wall and a, you know, a ghost behind <laughs> it. And it looks as if all the bones are stacked one on top of the other in this perfect compression balance uh -huh. that interestingly can't be reiterated in any lab anywhere ever because <laughs> bones are not touching each other in a healthy body, number one. Big problem. Didn't that cause everybody to ask a question? Apparently not. And secondly, in the lab, and this is how they were actually drawn, they used to hang the cadavers on a net, wire them to the net, paint them exactly as they wanted them to be, uh -huh. 
which is how they would occur in the living body, but don't occur in the absence of the connective tissue joining the bits to each other, which right. leave that out. But they don't remember that they've left that out. As you said, when we go down to the cell, we have to remember the environment we've removed it from or any scale. Back to Jan van der Laar. They're hanging on this net, they painted them, and then they just didn't paint or draw or make a lithograph of the net. So it all appears to be right. lovely. And then it was all criticised for the frivolity of the backgrounds because it wasn't proper science. But nobody bothered to notice that when you make a classroom skeleton, you have to go and buy separate wires and sticks and pins and screws to make it look as if. And I just sat there in the lab one day staring at this thing. And I mean, I've been humiliated many, many times at the hands of my teachers for my lack of understanding of anatomy and biomechanics because they didn't go through the route of the books. My father was an engineer and he kept saying, well, how does it work? He brought me up to say, how does it work? How do I move better? I'm not making him right or wrong. I'm just saying that's how I was brought up. And I came from art and English. And so it was like, what language describes this? And in, in my book, which thank you for my appendix that you wrote, I love you for that, is I said, well, thank you for having me do it. <laughs> no, no, I love it. I was so flattered and grateful. And what, what, here was the point that came to me. I sat there and I thought, hang on a minute. You're telling me I began as a dot size unicellular being, quote that, Jörg van der Waal. And I self-assembled. You've used this word twice in your in, in our talk. You've said we self-assembled or words reflecting uh -huh. self. Yep. Self-organization. Self-organization. You said that's right. And so I self-assemble. OK, so I self-assemble. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm thinking, at which point did my mother go into hospital and have a limb bolt on procedure or have my head screwed on? No point. At no point. And I just held this fast forward to a few years ago. My mother was having has laryngeal dystonia and we were with the ear, nose and throat specialist, a highly respected consultant who I really think a lot of. And my mother had had a heart response and we felt it might be directly connected with the Botox injections. Uh -huh. So I asked the consultant, is it possible? My mother had tachytubo cardiomyopathy. Is it possible that the injections into the base of her tongue, given that it's fascially continuous with the heart, and I dissected it so many times I can't even count, that, that there was a reaction to the Botox that caused this strange reaction in the heart. And this consultant looked at me very gently and did that thing they do when they think they're talking to a complete moron, which is speak slowly as if I was deaf. <laughs> She said, no, the fascia is something that covers the muscles and the heart is in the thorax and the tongue is part of the cranium. They're separate vaults in the body. <laughs> and I sat there and my mother's eyebrows disappeared. <laughs> I had my hand on her shoulder and my nails in her skin going, don't you say a word because she's got the needle. And she's in charge. And I have huge respect for her work. Please don't think I'm in any way yeah, disappointed. <laughs> and then I, I had to stop myself saying, try telling an embryo that. Right. Right. And I'm, I'm like, well, so grateful that you've said this because it's like, I, I know, like, where does it leave the rest of us if you've got people making assumptions in their language that because their work is on liver stem cells, the distinction between rodent and human isn't a valid distinction, as if the assumption that the data wouldn't reflect. Not only, not only isn't it a relevant distinction, 
but the mouse stuff is privileged <laughs> over the human. Um, but but this is where I hope, you know, people ask me, what do, what's my aspiration for the stuff we're doing? It has evolved as time has gone by, in part as I've met your communities, communities plural. <laughs> um, what, what I'm, this, I tried, Becky and I together, our whole team, we tried to craft this paper so the language was inclusive, not exclusionary. Yeah. To recognize that much of what we're talking about is a formal description in the terms of the tradition of allopathic medicine and Western microscopy. So that things that have been intuited or seen or documented through other means by other communities can translate into my community of origin, which is allopathic medicine. Um, so this recent paper shows continuity of the interstitial spaces from the lamina propria of the innermost lining of the digestive tract, the colon specifically, out through the submucosa, through the muscularis propria, out to the mesenteric fascia. It's all one continuous thing. Even though mesentery and colon are two separate organs. However, they are also not separate. The same from the papillary dermis to the reticular dermis down to the subcutaneous fascia. Again, and even, sorry, even in the, the fascia textbooks, it shows subcutaneous fascia as a separate compartment from dermis. But, but Neil, the year you were there, you were busy in the other room with those slide, those slab slide thing. What do you call them? The, I'm sorry, I don't speak. Uh, yeah, whatever those things were. Whatever they're called, yeah. With a bright Cross color. Cross-sections of organs. <laughs> Thank you. You were in the other room looking at those. And John had said to me, Joe, there's a cadaver over there. Would you like to go and work on it? What is it that you want to look for? And I said, well, I'm, I, you know, I've got this thing and it's, it's in my book all about the fact that we call the psoas a muscle of walking and the diaphragm a muscle of breathing. And I think they are completely continuous from a fascial point of view. And if you see them as myofascia, you don't see them as separate. And, and right. notwithstanding my arguments about the, the psoas, not arguments, but uh, you know, there's some real- <laughs> Well, the, Here's my thing, Neil. If you go to Gray's Anatomy and you look up psoas, you will be told it is the ilio-psoas complex. Uh -huh. They are completely different. They are differently innovated. They have different purposes. They do different things. And it's like, don't do this. Yeah. And and, I, and it really frustrates me because from a from a manual therapy point of view, as a structural integrator, I've made so much difference from people by assisting them to release adhesions between psoas and iliacus that it can't be the same. So that's my beef. We won't talk about that. Back to what we will talk about is I just want to share this with you because you were there at the time, yeah. is that. John said to me, that cadaver over there is yours for your psoas, your diaphrasoas thing. Because I've got I'm like, why did they choose iliopsoas? Why not diaphrasoas? We'd have an entirely different maths, yeah. physics, biology, and chemistry of walking and breathing if we'd called it the diaphrasoas. Because I think it was arbitrary. I think it was an arbitrary yeah. connection from the way dissection was done 400 years ago. Sorry, but they were human too. So anyway, I went into this cadaver and it was a, a female in their 80s. And the for a start, the diaphragm wasn't a muscle. It was a bilaminar transparent membrane 
-hmm. with an opaque part in the center that you would refer to as the central tendon with little tiny dots of of myoprotein in it, but they were dots. So that was the first like, wow, imagine breathing. That's a, that's a tensional right. network thing. Or not breathe. breathing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. She passed away, but that had her living and it was preserved. Right. So, so, so she must have been living with that, that tensional network of that diaphragm across her abdomen, across her torso right. was tensioned, not because it was a big thick muscle that did muscular work, which is uh -huh. a presupposition that we have. Like but because it, was, membrane. it was a tensioned membrane. So anyway, the first thing I had to do was in my mind, in my imagination, as I have done several times before with formalin, preserved dissections was to remove the mesentery and the organs of the abdomen to see the psoas behind it right oh, so I took yes. the mesentery and one of the assistant dissectors was showing me an easy way to remove the mesentery because we have to sacrifice something right you want to do it relatively quickly and we took out the mesentery and the diaphragm went like a deflated parachute oh. and I just stood there in complete shock with my mouth open not realizing that John Sharkey was standing two yards away with his hands in his pockets of his, of his, you know, his lab coat, yeah. grinning his head off, <laughs> me, saying, your face is classic. And I said, the diaphragm's deflated. And he said, no, it's been untensioned. You've removed the mesentery. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know I have, but the diaphragm, I didn't remove the diaphragm. And he looked at me and he said, which bit of one piece didn't you get you've written a book about it and I went yeah 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 I know it's all one piece John but and he, he said, you know it's all one piece but the diaphragm is continuous with the intestines with the mesentery with it's one piece it's one of one piece and I was like oh my god and I then I got it then I got it well, you know, what we're doing with the, the other thing in this paper is that these spaces within the fiber connective tissue layers of the bowel and mesentery cutis and subcutis is that it goes into the vessels of all of the adventitia of all the veins and arteries and the nerves. And that then goes out into the entire body, et cetera. Now, you can see that in any tissue section. We're moving forward now to other organs. And what it requires us to do is to take sections of human tissues that are not the standard section. Mm. So we are working on the heart now. <clears throat> and it seems pretty clear to me that the epicardium is in continuity with the adventitia of the great vessels. And that the epicardial spaces go are continuous through the myocardial interstitial spaces into the I, I'm sorry I'm backwards the epicardial spaces are continuous with the great vessels the and then also through the muscular wall of the heart to the endocardial spaces in order to get those sections we have to take sections that cross those boundaries those are not standard sections though because the standard section is to take out the organ and then you take sections within the organ. To, to demonstrate these things, I have to take the, the sections between bits. Oh, I love it. I'm They're non-traditional sections. Oh, thank God someone's doing it. Well, yeah. So, the, I mean, that's, I think that's sort of, 
Becky can do um, Rebecca Wells. Becky, <laughs> to those who know her, can do a tremendous amount of cellular and molecular work and uh, biophysical stuff that I can understand some of it, but I can't do it. Um, but this I can do. And so we're doing it. Um, and so I'm just going to sort of move my way through the body at my leisure over the next couple of years, showing these continuities between all these different spaces. So if I could get a specimen, I, it's hard to do this in autopsy tissue because so far the hyaluronic acid uh, seems to disintegrate. I don't know what I can do about that. But I know that if I took sections from the tongue down through the neck into the heart, I could show your doctor exactly Please. what you're talking about. I would so love it because this this is so crucial. And I know John was asking you about the heart tissues because we were we were talking about this and how we wanted to sort of kidnap you and and Becky and just spend a month in the teal fixed dissection just giving these cross yeah. sections because what we're really talking about is that when you have a weave, the weave forms the in-between. Right. Yes, yeah, so that's what yeah. we're talking. When you say spaces, they're not spaces. They're what's not woven. Right. And when you look at what it's woven with, that's got it within it. And that's biotensecrity. It's the weave that weaves the weave. And every strand of the weave is the weave itself. Right. And I've got here this packing paper, which is actually <laughs> paper with little slits in it laid out much like collagen lays itself out. And when you pull it, there's the spaces. And when you let it go back to and release but it. I've got, a, I've got a better example for you that Show me. blew my mind and kept me awake at 2.30 in the morning. I, I, I actually emailed Becky with pictures and uh, references at 2.30 in the morning the other night. My husband was finishing a jigsaw puzzle, um, getting ready to come to bed. And I was like, I, what are you doing up? <laughs> I can't stop thinking about something I saw in the New York Times about the interstitium today. What is it? I said, it's about hot water cr pastry crust. <laughs> so I know I, actually, I had to take an Ambien because I could, I actually had to take two Ambien because I could not shut down. Um, so, um, so is there was this article. Wheel through the paste per, the, through the pastry. No, 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 no. So this was all, it started with Nadia, who was, uh, we're great British Bake Off fans. And Nadia is my favorite winner. Okay, I love this. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so it was an article about hot water <laughs> pastry crust, starting off with um, her recipe for um, uh, a samosa pie, which was just like, we're going to make some this week. But <laughs> so the deal was, what's going on chemically, physically in dough when you add boiling water. So if you take pastry dough and stretch it, the gluten has created fibers that connect to each other. And so that when you pull on, on dough, the ordinary kind of dough, you get this stringy stuff and it's tense. You have to sort of pull it apart and it's kind of hard to work with. But if you add boiling water to it, it becomes very pliable and supple. And that's how you can make soft Chinese milk buns and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Pate choux, yeah. um, which I only know about, my husband knows all about this, but I only know about it because of the Great British Bake Off. 
Um, so what's happening when you add the boiling water? Well, there's starch in the flour, and the starch um, dissolves in the boiling water and then creates, it, it undergoes a process called gelatinization. Mm. And so the molecules are stringed together. And so what you wind up having to my ear <laughs> when I read this, well, to my eye when I read this, um, is that the gluten keeps things tense. And then you add the boiling water to create this gelatinization of the starch within the spaces between the gluten fibers. And you suddenly have dough that becomes really supple. And I thought to myself, this is what all these body worker folk who have the, the osteopaths and the cranial sacral workers at NNNNN who are telling me about what they can feel in tissue about the nature of the fascia. Because when you don't have enough hyaluronic acid, which has undergone gelatinization between the collagen fibers, it's like having gluten but no gelatinized starch between them. And suddenly, because I don't know how to go from what I see under the microscope slide to what this subtle texture change is. Yes. And so I was awake at 2.30 in the morning. And finally, I was like, wow, I wonder if people have done microscopy of bread dough. <laughs> it turns oh out and when you look at the photomicrographs of dough of gluten fibers in dough, and this I sent to Becky and made her talk to me about it the next morning. This was all Saturday night, Sunday morning. I could say, this is human fascia. And these are collagen networks within the fascia. And these are the interstitial spaces. I could have interchanged those between my papers and the, <laughs> the bread dough papers. And you would never know the difference. It's the same thing. And there's no cell. There's no living tissue. It's simply the biomechanical properties, like what you talk about with the biotensegrity. There are some aspects of living bodies that are about the mechanics. But it's a very, this is like, fluid mechanics this exactly. is i was just about to say the thing know, is it, it this is this thrills me i tell you why my previous life i spent 20 years when when i was married to my son's father i was a chocolatier we had the first belgian chocolate factory in the uk <laughs> and i'll never forget i was at the biotensegrity interest group event and i was having a stand-up argument with a with a an osteopath who was trying to tell me that the bending moment at the human knee did this, this, and this. And I said, there is no bending moment at the human knee. Don't be ridiculous. There's no levers in nonlinear biologic forms. And we were just having this argument. So she then did this very elaborate drawing on this board of why there is bending moment based on all the mechanics that she, literally the mechanics of the human form that was based on the industrial revolution and, you know, body is machine and blah, blah, blah. Pirelli's work and all that. And, she looked across at me and Leonid Blyum was on my left, who you have to speak to. And Steve Levin was on my right, Dr. Levin. And she looked up and, and she looked at Steve and said, will you please tell her why she's wrong? And Steve said, well, I can't because she's right, but she doesn't know why. <laughs> so it, like, I just love him so much. Such Jewish humor. She, she's right, but she doesn't know why. She's an idiot, but she's right, idiot. So Leonid started to laugh and 
this poor girl, I mean, this was all like the history of her work being applied very beautifully. And she's a very accomplished osteopath, let me tell you, does absolutely beautiful work. But I was just saying, look, I'm not criticizing your work. I'm just saying that's the wrong reasons. It doesn't bloody add up because it flows, because it's all about the tension compression of a, of a, a round thing of water. Just, just a balloon of water is a tensegrity structure. But it's also about all those balloons of water inside a membrane. So what you're talking about is the organelle to the cell, the cell to the organ, the organ to the organism, the organism to the organization, the organization to the organic planet, to the galaxy. It's all of it. And I said, but what you've got to understand is that you're working with a liquid crystal on a spectrum of textures because it doesn't all behave the same. And it depends on its temperature. It depends on its tempo. It depends on its timing. Don't you understand? And she looked at me like completely blank. And, and I just went, why doesn't she understand me? And Leonid looked across and he said, because you're, you spent 20 years up to your elbows in a liquid crystal. Of course you understand it. Right. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you were a chocolatier, weren't you? And I went, yeah. What's that got to do with the price of bread? Do you know what I mean? And he, literally he looked at me and he said, Joe, don't you understand? You spent all those years as an artisan experiencing the result of emergent properties. So you have an incredible bandwidth for emergent properties. And that's all we're working with. And that's what we can't stand because emergent properties are unpredictable. Right. Uh, You know, the, the close encounter I had with a very prominent interstitial researcher in Berlin, Mm -hmm. um, where everything I tried to, she didn't understand what we were saying was new in any fashion. Um, and she would keep bringing her hands up around her forehead and shake them going, I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, and how she could not understand what I was talking about really baffled me um, until I realized, I think a few months later, I spend my day in the microscope going from high to low power and back again. So I'm used to moving across wow. scales. Zooming in and zooming out, right? Zooming in and zooming out. And if you've got a self-similar system that is fractal-like, if not in fact fractal, and you're not used to zooming in and zooming out, all levels of scale look the same. There's nothing new in what we're talking about. But right. the scale of what she was looking at is 10 microns across, and the scale of what I'm looking at is millimeters. So they're not the mm-hmm. same thing. But if you put the close-up images of the two of them without size bars, they look identical. Right. So I think that, you know, that's part of the problem. But, but that kind of conversation, which we all experience and we're all frustrated by, I, what got me into the complexity theory stuff is I was teamed up with an artist. You heard me talk about this, Jane Prophet. Mm-hmm who had an artificial life thing uh, back in the 90s called Technosphere. And she and I were put in a room just to find out how an artist and a scientist would talk to each other. And we became a good example of how interdisciplinary collaborations and communications can be very creative. People actually study our conversations. What we learned about interdisciplinary stuff, becoming part of an example of that being studied, is that it successful cross-disciplinary projects begin with simply, you have to have a willingness to listen to the other person. They tell their story in their language. You tell your story in your language. 
And then you start to try and help each other understand your languages. That's what happened in Dundee. It didn't happen too well in Berlin at the small round table they had pre-meeting because there were a lot of people in the room who were holding their view very tightly and not and just going, I don't know what you're talking about, rather than saying, let me listen to you and try to understand why I don't know. And you and that woman, you didn't even, you didn't even know what perspective you were coming from, which is kind of marvelous. Well, many of us in allopathic medicine, we don't know that there are other perspectives. We're taught that this is the perspective. Right. So when, <laughs> you know, and one of my favorite stories from the, the era that, of my first encounters with all of you was um, the relief that, that, <laughs> that um, we, in fact, could listen to each other and do so productively and creatively. And how exciting that was for everyone the moment we let down our resistances to hearing, oh, that's a different side. Mm. Um, but then I went, because I was uh, I was consulting in China a lot, and I was asked to speak on this stuff in China, consulting on liver disease. But since I'm there, would you talk about this stuff? And there was a very prominent physician who I knew of as a liver specialist, but it turns out, I think he's the was at the time the actual director of um, the National Institute for Studying Traditional Chinese Medicine. And so he was allowed to have the first question because of who he was. And his question was, so how have people responded to this work? And I said, well, there are a lot of people who justifiably were angry because they said, we've been talking about these things for 40 or 50 years. Um, and he laughed and he said, yes, and we've been talking about it for 4,000. <laughs> My dream, and this, I actually have started working to put together such a conference, except it got interrupted by COVID, is to have 12 to 15 people from different cultures of healing from around the world, allopathic medicine, osteopaths, uh, body workers of various stripes, uh, Ayurvedic medicine, Tibetan medicine, Chinese medicine, Aboriginal practices from North America, from Australia, 12 to 15 people. The first day, my dream is the first day is their treatment rooms and everyone gets to experience the treatments of two or three other practitioners rotating through. No discussion, no interpretations, just have the experience. Then get in the room and begin with, okay, we're presenting how we're thinking of spaces and tissues and blah, 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 blah. Now, all of you <laughs> go at it. First, one by one, because so many people from so many different cultures have said what we put in these papers is what they've been talking about. So I feel like this body of histologic anatomy is the interstitial stuff that can maybe help the communication between all these cultures. Oh, it's my prayer, Neil, to, with you. And I, I just think the idea that it's the in-between, that it's the threading of the in-between. I mean, you know, when you talk about Dundee, 
John Sharkey's dream for Dundee was to bring together people from different aspects of the discipline and have them work together. And the very first year that we did that, we had Jacques van der Waal and Jean-Claude Gamberteau. And they didn't see eye to eye. I mean, that all, <laughs> like, amazing. But they dared to be in the room and, and John held the room as, as only John Sharkey can. And he, he we're in the lecture theatre and they, you know, Jean-Claude came in and he said, I, I agree with you regarding, and, and Yarp just stood there and he looked at Jean-Claude and he went, no, you don't, you don't agree with anything. And they started and John said, John just pressed pause and he went, guys, listen to this. This is fantastic because this kind of interaction is what we're here for. This is the friction that creates the heat. I'm paraphrasing. John didn't use these words, these are my words, but this is the friction that creates the heat, the fire of passion within us all that we'll all learn from. And their interaction actually wasn't argumentative. It was hugely respectful. But Yarp was saying, basically, you've got three things in the human body. You've got cells, you've got connective tissues, and you've got the in-between. And you can't have any of them without each other. It's it, 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 This isn't his words either, but it's a holy trinity. I had to say, I was, I was yeah, sat there. Okay, whatever, yeah, I, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I know. But I was sat there going, I was praying my socks off just right next to him that he wouldn't lose his temper because I just knew the value of this. And, and when we could grow that and they both came back and you were there with Rebecca Wells, Becky, and other people. And the fact that the forum was allowed to be informal, but nobody's challenged for their wisdom, their authority in their own field. And that, you know, I have to give right. credit to John for that. And my dream for what you're dreaming is that by going with the in-between with your particular brand of storytelling and humility and wisdom and experience and authority in your field, Neil. Let's not mess about here. You've been doing this for friggin' decades. Yeah. But also your 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 bandwidth, because it includes a spiritual awareness. So that when you're discussing crowd control, you can discuss it in different densities. You can talk about it in the physical, you can talk about it at every scale there, but you can also talk about it in the in the mystical or in the emotional. You have this bandwidth. And I, I just can't thank you enough for bringing it to the table and, and being bothered to storyfy it the way that you do, because it, it is inclusive and it is working and it's making a difference to all of us. It is so inspiring that you took the trouble with that paper to write in a way that all of us can understand and read and become excited. And, you know, I started off by saying, is the interstitium synonymous with? And you're kind of saying yes and no. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I open my book with the phrase, if you want to come on the journey about fascia, you have to accept paradox. Both are true. Right. What, what I call complementarity. Yeah. And it isn't paradox. It's, it's paradox because we say with our limited minds that that can't happen. So the fact that it does happen is paradoxical. But if the very fundamental nature of the universe and its most finely grained, um, infinitely wave-like uh, nature yeah. <laughs> is complementary, in complementarity, there is no whole that is not paradox. There's no such thing as a paradox. It's the fundamental nature of existence. Oh, I love, I love you. I just love you. I completely adore you. And the other thing I wanted to say before we go, because I know you, thank you for your time, 
is that um, in the book that you've so generously written, and this is my self-promotion moment of the new edition of my book, I've got a chapter in there called Architecture, because Jean-Claude keeps saying there are no layers in the human body. <laughs> and I thought, well, let's talk about different textures of water and different textures of this, all these in-betweens that you talk about. And just as a, as a kind of final thing, as body workers, do you think that this inclusion of skin and let's do a whatever over bone, but why would any of it be made of anything else? I mean, really, let's just think about the embryology of that for a minute. It just makes sense. Um, what would you have us, oh, and in the embryo, by the way, I'm including the wrapping and the amniotic sac that becomes the embryonic form. So it's all part of the same. I mean, why would there be three separate materials and five separate mm, just doesn't make any sense of how we formed. Where are you on the, and this is a bit of a step, but Jarp van der Waal says to us that we begin as unicellular beings that become multicellular beings. Spirit animates form. And in my world, formlessness, you know, for me, what makes us all the same is that every single one of us is unique. That's not actually paradoxical. It's true. No two people are the same. But how would you... But you're being reductive. Yes, I am. Fair. So if you... I think I said this to David uh, in his podcast, but this is a really potent idea for me. So you go back to that unicellular living thing that Yap refers to. And before it was a unicellular thing, it was a bicellular thing of a sperm and an egg. That egg derived from other cells in your mother's body. That derived from other cells in your mother's body, that derived from other cells going back to when she was a young woman, back to when she was a teenager, back to when she was a child, a neonate, a late stage fetus, an embryo that was one egg that derived from her mother's egg, and on and on and on and on. So there is no individual being here. So far, to the best of our knowledge, every cell on the planet descends through a billion years to whatever that initiating life form was. There's no separate individuals. It's just one being. So we can discuss how individuals are individuals, or we can discuss how they are not individuals. It's another complementarity. Either perspective leaves something important out. Spirit that animates, I can't remember which is, that animates spirit the body. animates the form, yeah. Uh, spirit animates the form, but the form animates the spirit. Yeah. Uh, you know, this gets, I can go into, um, the Zen Buddhist stuff and talk about form is exactly emptiness and emptiness is exactly form. Um, exactly. And, and it's, it's all true. We just have to be honest that we are all selecting points of view and that any selection of a point of view therefore excludes someone else's point of view. That doesn't mean their point of view is wrong. And so the reason we can have the conversations we have when we all get together you mentioned one word that's really important, and that's respect. Yeah. And the second word that's really important is humility. 
Yeah. You get people in a room who are respectful of each other and humble in their own views. That's when the magic happens, right? I, I love that. Thank you. It's beautiful. And and I think in this in our teaching capacity, we teach somebody to be better than us, and then they teach us to be better than them, and then we they <laughs> we teach them, and then it's back of, and we're in this collective. And I, I talk constantly about going from the classical to the connected to the collective. And it's hard to navigate because you you have to surrender the I to some extent, yeah. to the greater I. So how do we do that? I don't know. And I love and it. And return to the I that can be useful. Yeah. <laughs> On which note? Namaste. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank Always you. Always a pleasure. So good to see you. <laughs> it's so good to see you. And I just can't wait till your dream comes true because I'm sure it will. Thank you. Hopefully you'll be in the room. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.